Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 23. The Case for Free Exchange. No matter how complex a country's constitution, or sophisticated its institutional constraints are on its rulers, it won't ultimately prevent the concentration of power if ordering society from on high is thought to be the right thing to do. And nothing makes the idea of top-down design appear more desirable, indeed essential, than pessimism. The story of human progress is remarkable and uplifting, yet it's seldom told. One of the reasons is that pessimism, the notion that progress hasn't happened and that left to themselves things will only get worse, provides a powerful pretext for those intent upon intervening in the affairs of others. Why? Because if you believe the world's getting worse, you invite the idea that there needs to be some sort of intervention to put things right. From Jacobins to Marxists to today's radical environmentalists and intersectionalists, those intent on ordering society according to some sort of scheme always start out by insisting that the world's getting worse. Rousseau suggested that the human condition had somehow descended from a pristine past. It was on the back of this pessimistic view of human history that the Jacobins established a dictatorship that tried to make society start again from scratch. Marx argued that history was a grim story of class struggle. Today, many progressives reject the notion that there's been much human progress at all. Even if the human condition has improved, they insist, Progress has happened only as a result of catastrophic environmental degradation or the exploitation of women or minorities by patriarchy. Pessimism served as a pretext in pre-modern times too, which is why it pervades the creation myths of those patrimonial societies of the past. In the Aztec creation myth, one of their gods kicks things off by murdering most members of his family. In Egypt, Ra gave rise to humans when he wept and bled. In ancient Chinese mythology, people came to existence as the fleas on Pangu's corpse. In the Old Testament, of course, Adam and Eve fell from grace and were expelled from Eden. None of it's exactly cheerful stuff, is it? It's doom and gloom for a purpose. Those at the apex of society, intent on ordering it to their own advantage, have always had to promote a pessimistic worldview. The sun might not rise anew each morning. The rains might fail. The souls of sinners might remain in perpetual purgatory. Without the intervention of experts, social inequality might increase, or the climate will collapse, or the oceans turn to acid. Or AI will take our jobs, and automation will mean mass unemployment, or Europe will see the rerun of world war, or something. There's always some disaster scenario. Unless, of course, we accept the need for whatever grandiose intervention it is we're being told that will save the situation. So, pay that tithe, pay those tolls and taxes, submit to the wisdom of priests and experts, allow the elites to shape public policy as they insist, and all will be well. Submit to the authority of some supranational agency, and then we can avert such apocalyptic outcomes. Just like in pre-modern times, Today we're asked to believe that giving other people authority over us will somehow restore the world to some kind of equilibrium. 
But what if the world manages just fine by itself? What if things are actually looking up and don't really need any sort of top-down direction at all? What if people all came to appreciate that it's not just the sun and the rains or the souls of sinners or anything like that, but social equality and opportunity and material improvements that can take care of themselves? Then there would be much less need to place at the centre stage those who insist that they should order our lives for us. This is why telling the story of our elevation is so subversive and so necessary. Pessimism, you see, isn't just a question of downplaying human progress. It's all about implying that progress, even when it happens, is somehow incidental. That it's down to something other than human agency and ingenuity. We're repeatedly invited to believe that the reason why some societies have advanced further than others is a matter of luck or geography or the local ecology. Or it's because of the prevalence of guns, germs and steel or the ease with which local fauna and flora could be domesticated. Anything, it seems, to avoid the conclusion that some societies might be better than others. Some societies might have done a better job than others because of the way they arrange themselves. Hobbes's 17th century heresy was to suggest that an improvement in the human condition could be accounted for by the effect of a strong sovereign. The heresy today is to suggest that it's free markets that explain human progress. Jared Diamond, the best-selling historian whose ideas about the past have influenced millions of people, finds all sorts of ecological factors to account for why some societies flourished relative to others in the past. Anything to avoid the notion that some societies are inherently better than others. Looking forward, he warns of catastrophic environmental depletion. Collapse can only be averted, apparently, by adopting some sort of, you've got it, grandiose blueprint. Making human agency incidental to the story of human progress turns out to be intrinsically pessimistic and makes it easier to justify ordering society from above by fiat and ultimately force. Once we appreciate that there has been progress, we're no longer beholden to the sense that we need to submit our society to orders from above in order that we might be somehow saved. It's not class struggle or the exploitation of other people or the environment that accounts for our increased living standards. It's our own agency and ingenuity. Undirected human agency is not just the engine of progress. The idea that it might be is an affront to any sense that society should be organised by others which is precisely why so much effort has gone into finding all kinds of external factors, anything but human agency, to account for human progress. It's not only pessimism that's used to undermine the idea of a free society. So too is the notion that there's something immoral about free exchange. Free exchange is, in reality, morally superior to any other form of exchange. And the best way to illustrate this is perhaps to start with a cup of coffee. Moments before I typed this sentence, I spent three pounds on a cappuccino here in my favourite London cafe. It might sound obvious, but I bought a cup of coffee because I wanted it more than I wanted the three pounds I used to pay for it. 
And conversely, the cafe owner sold me the coffee because he preferred to have the three pounds rather than the coffee he served me. So we swapped and we were both better off as a result. This simple idea extends all the way along the various processes that go into producing a cappuccino. The person that worked the coffee machine, the farmer whose herd of cows produced the milk, the company that made the cup I drank, and of course the farmer that grew the coffee beans. Each one of them was prompted to sell some of what it was that went into making my cup of coffee because they stood to gain from the exchange. Ah, you might think, but what about that poor farmer in Africa who only got a small fraction of the three pounds that I paid? Surely it's exploitation that the person that produced such a key ingredient only got a tiny amount of the money. Alongside pessimism, this idea that exchange is exploitative is another pernicious idea used to justify ordering affairs by design. The implication is that we can't have some sort of spontaneous economic order without someone somewhere being worse off as a result. But this kind of claim that free exchange is exploitative is simply not true. Why would either the coffee farmer or anyone else in the production process freely sell their produce unless they were better off after their transaction than they were before? To be sure, the coffee farmer, much like everyone else that contributed to the process that produced my cup of coffee, might have preferred it if they were paid more. But by definition, they would not have entered into the exchange freely unless it left them better off than where they were before. If you believe that the coffee farmer who grew the beans that made my coffee was underpaid for his produce, why stop with him? What about the barista that worked the coffee machine or the dairy farmer? who puts in such long and lonely hours with their herd? Why not pay them more too on the basis of what we feel to be fair? That would be better, right? Wrong. If we pay people on the basis of some sort of arbitrary assessment of what it felt right to pay them, my coffee would have probably cost me not £3, but £5 or more. And at that point, I prefer to keep the money in my bank and not swap it for a cup of coffee at all. So there'd be less custom and everyone that stood to gain from my purchase of a £3 cup of coffee would be worse off. That is precisely what happens on a vastly greater scale when we allow arbitrary ideas of worth and value to determine what people pay for what others produce. It's why socialist systems don't work. It's why countries that try to pay people on the basis of what others feel to be fair, some arbitrary measure of what is fair, like Uganda in the 1970s or Venezuela today, end up with chronic shortages and poverty. It's why every city in the West that's ever tried rent controls ends up making the housing problem worse. A product, whether it's a cup of coffee or a flat for rent, is not worth what we feel it ought to be worth or what some bureaucrat assesses it to be worth. It's worth what people are actually prepared to do for it. This is what makes free exchange morally superior to every other system of exchange. Superior morally and fairer. None of this is to say that there are not circumstances in which it might be necessary and morally justifiable to find other ways of allocating resources. It might, in certain circumstances, for example, be right to commandeer someone else's property to save a life. 
There are times when it's legitimate for the state to commandeer things from citizens in defence of some overarching interest. It's right that we do jury service in the interests of justice, or in national emergencies, military service to defend the country, or pay taxes in the interest of helping the helpless. But exchange undertaken freely is always morally preferable than any other basis of exchange. Free exchange is morally preferable to forced exchange, yet we're constantly asked to believe the opposite, that the division of labour is somehow undignified and at worst exploitative. According to the French economist Thomas Piketty, Western economies are programmed to fail. Returns on capital, he argued in his best-selling book, accumulate inexorably faster than the economy grows. This, Piketty suggests, will lead to a concentration of wealth, giving rise to unsustainable inequality and unrest. Pessimism and inequality for Piketty necessitate redistribution. What might just save the day, he implies, is if we put our faith in economists like him, who are able to understand the problem and devise a system of redistribution that will restore everything to equilibrium. Marxists, of course, have spent more than a century making much the same point. Any sort of spontaneous economic order, they insist, ends in exploitation and class warfare. Free exchange, they suggest, can't improve the human condition. Only a state taking from one class and giving it to another can create order and progress, apparently. Such ideas about redistribution have recently been given a whole new lease of life with calls for UBI, or Universal Basic Income. No tech conference these days seems complete without at least one of its participants emoting about the effect of automation. This will create mass unemployment, they say, and the only answer will be for the state to pay every citizen a regular sum of money unconditionally out of government funds. This apparently can be paid for by taxing a few tech zillionaires, the very success of whose companies necessitate such large payments in the first place. The trouble is that there's very little actual evidence that paying people a universal basic income is either necessary or would work. It's simply false to suggest that automation has created widespread unemployment. Machines have been taking jobs done by humans for over 200 years, yet far from causing mass hardship. There have never been more jobs in Western states than there are today. Well, before the COVID crisis. In Finland, where a pilot UBI programme was run, results showed no evidence that paying people a universal basic income achieved much in terms of helping unemployed people back to work. Those that had jobs at the start of the project tended to be in work at the end of it. Those who weren't gainfully employed before tended not to be in work despite receiving it. If the purpose of UBI is to help those whose livelihoods have been harmed by digital disruption, might it not make more sense to help such people specifically, targeted help, rather than offering payments to everyone. And in a world where digital enables much more personalization, with individualized playlists and individualized banking services, does it really make sense to adopt a blanket system of welfare provision which takes no account of personal circumstances? 
surely a truly modern system of welfare for the digital age would be one that personalised payments, making full use of technology to track both taxes paid in, family circumstances and the number of dependents and the needs of the individual, a personalised system rather than a universalised one. It's not even as if the idea of a universal basic income is actually new. Something rather similar to it was introduced in Rome back in 123 BC when Tiberius Gracchus created the corn dole. Then, like now, there was apparently a problem of mass unemployment, or at least that's what advocates of the system said. It was not any sort of machine automation that put Roman citizens out of work back then, but the mass importation of slave labour, or so Tiberius Gracchus suggested. All those slaves put to work on the giant farming estates, the latifundi, were denying honest Roman citizens the ability to earn an income, apparently. So along came Gracchus to offer every Roman citizen the right to claim a basic allowance of subsidised, soon-to-be-free, corn. The corn dole wasn't about altruism, but it was a system of imperial extortion. It wasn't about tackling the inequalities of the age, fast and growing, though they might have been. It was a way for the Roman elite to give the plebs a share of the plunder that they were extracting from the provinces. Like wealth redistribution today, it entrenched inequality, cementing the Roman plebs in their position of dependency, and incidentally putting great power in the hands of whoever was able to control the flow of free corn into the Rome from the far-flung provinces. In every age, when wealth is allocated by redistribution, rather than by the autonomous actions of the market, those with political power are able to amass a great deal of it. This is why elites often rather like the idea of redistributing wealth. Of course, Many of those that advocate a universal basic income today are heroically indifferent to the evidence that it doesn't work. No kind of counter-arguments can persuade them. Like those that insist the world is getting worse, or those who are adamant that free exchange is inherently exploitative, their argument is really about something else. The urge to save humanity, once wrote the American author H.L. Menick, is almost always a false front for the urge to rule it. Those today who claim that they crave greater equality in society often really want to shape it. Those who insist that progress is not possible unless we implement their plan seem most intent on being the implementers. We might defend ourselves against the ambition of those who seek to hold power over us with all manner of legal safeguards, but it's only by exposing the fraudulence of these claims of moral superiority that we can be secure. Self-ordering societies are under attack both by conservatives and progressives, each of whom would rather use the apparatus of the state to impose their blueprint on the rest of us. Self-order is their common enemy, and the surest way to defend it is to make the moral case for self-order. In doing so, we must seek to delegitimize the claims on those who make claims upon the rest of us. Societies that are open to free exchange are not only materially and technologically better off. Self-ordering societies often prove to be morally superior places, with more equality, hope and opportunity for everyone too.
That was the final chapter in my book, Progress vs. Parasites. This is Douglas Carswell. I very much enjoyed reading them out to you. I hope you've enjoyed them too. And if you'd like to buy a copy of the actual book itself, it's available on Amazon. If you'd like to follow me on social media and delve into some of the ideas that I've raised, please join me online. Thank you so much.